In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus. Last week uh, we didn't have a Bible study, so we're going to just recap uh, just really briefly the, the chapter that we left on, which was chapter uh, 16. Uh, we're just going to read the first few verses which we had covered the previous time, um, and then we will continue from there. So last time the main focus was about the celebration that the uh, Israelites made after they crossed the Red Sea. And then it was, um, they, they were thirsty, they were looking for water, and there was a place that had bitter water that whose name was Mara, and um, they took a tree and they threw the tree into the water and it turned the water to be sweet so they could drink. And then the third important event that happened last time was the manna that came down from heaven so that the people could eat. So those were the three main topics that we discussed last time was their celebration after crossing the Red Sea, the drinking of the waters of Mara after it became sweet, and then after they, were, they, they complained about being hungry, God sent them the manna um, from heaven. So we will recap chapter 16 real quick, uh, and then we will continue. So it says, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So we had talked about how um, ungrateful that the Israelites were and they were so quick to complain against God and complain against Moses and assume the worst intentions uh, and, and to assume that God is not taking care of them because of kind of their, their natural hunger, um, their thirst, like the, the feeling of like the, the desires of the flesh caused them to completely uh, ignore all of the faithfulness that God has showed them all throughout their story and instead just to focus on their, their immediate bodily needs in that moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel at evening, You shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? So the people here, Moses is saying, we are not the ones that are, can provide for you, Moses and Aaron. We're not the ones that can provide for you, but it is only the Lord who can provide. So why are you directing your complaints against us as though we are the ones in control? Also, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him, and what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, 
and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp in the morning, and uh, covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Actually, so the, the, the name manna that was given to um, this substance that was coming was based on this question, what is it? Like, like what, what is this? This is the way that they would, they, they would express it. They would say, uh, that's why it was called manna. And actually, I think in Arabic as well, how do you say men? No, like, how do you say what is it in, in Arabic? Me, me, like, it's, it sounds similar. Like, it's, it has a similar, it's, it's, it's similar to, um, to that as well. Like, men or men, yeah, who, who is it? This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. So, Again, to reiterate the commandment of God when he told them for gathering the manna, he told them, gather only what you need for the one day. And anyone who tried to gather more than what they needed for the day and to store it for the next day, it would rot. Except for Friday, uh, which is said was the sixth day. On this day, they, uh, God would command them to keep more, uh, enough for the following day as well because the, the Saturday or the Sabbath day was a day of spiritual rest to where they would not be going to gather, um, uh, th they would not be going to gather uh, the the manna for themselves and be distracted by this physical labor, so that they could commemorate this day uh, and consecrate that day to God. So here he's saying everyone is gathering according to their need, right? One omer for each person, and omer is about like a little, maybe a little more than one and a half kilograms. Okay, is the amount that that they would gather up um, for each person. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. So God allowed those people who had a greater need, maybe because their family was larger in size, to gather more of the manna so that they could have it to feed their entire family. And whatever it is that they gathered was sufficient for them. And those who had a smaller family, or maybe they were just single by themselves, the amount of manna that they would gather was also sufficient for themselves. And it says something about the way that God, um, he meets the needs of each individual, right? Everyone has different needs. Sometimes people who are about to have children, like if you have like a young couple who's about to have children, and maybe they're on limited budget, uh, and they begin to think to themselves, how are we going to afford to now have a third person, a baby with us in the family, when maybe we feel like we are barely able to, to get by with just the two of us, right? And, and yet God sends this kind of grace and sufficiency to, to, to give whatever is needed for the sake of this new child that is to be born so that the family does not experience lack, but instead they are able to provide for themselves as before. It's like God is blessing us according to our need. You know, sometimes what we are looking for in this life is not to be content with what we need, but to be indulging in luxury. 
right? Sometimes, and, 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 and maybe this is, the society drives us to this. The society makes us to dream about luxury and that what I want for myself is luxury. But here, even the attempt of these people to have, quote-unquote, luxury, which is where, you know, maybe I would gather enough um, manna for, for multiple days so that I wouldn't have to go out and work every single day, and yet God rejected this strategy. He rejected this idea. He said, no, you go and you work every day. You go and you use your time, like, for, for good, for, for, for to produce every day. This is why this idea of the whole I'm going to retire early and spend the rest of my life having fun is a fallacy. Um, because, because what ends up happening is we, we, we waste the rest of our life. Yes, maybe financially I can. You know, but the, the reason that we work is not just to be financially secure. Work is therapeutic. You know, you know a lot of people that maybe um, go out on uh, like uh, retirement after they retire and they feel like their life doesn't have purpose. They don't know what to do with their time. They don't know how, how they, they don't have no reason to wake up. You know, they have they, they, they sp spend their time doing things that are, you know, maybe unproductive, unhealthy. Maybe they even like, you know, fall into some kind of mental illness or get depressed. The idea here that we are to wake up with a purpose and a plan and that God wants us to do it and we are providing for ourselves every day and that our goal of this is not luxury, but our goal of this is to be um, to be secure, to have what we need so that our needs are met, not to have something ex exorbitant, extravagant, luxurious. Whatever it is that these people were doing, they were able to meet their needs day by day by day. This also tells us something about the way that God provides. God provides us day by day. He, he provides day by day. When we begin to think and worry about, well, what about next week and next month and next year and 10 years from now and all this, you know, maybe we, we fall into this trap of trying to over plan. You know, like planning is good and, and we definitely do need to plan, but there is such a thing as over planning. You know, the example of this is in the story that the Lord gave about the man who thought to himself that I'm going to take my money and I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to expand my business and I'm going to do all these things and future plans that he had. But then he called him a fool because his life was actually going to be taken from him that se same night. And of what good was all of his plans that he was thinking about only this world and thinking about only how he was going to expand his business and expand his wealth, but he had completely neglected his spiritual life. So we don't want to fall into this trap of being over planners when we are thinking only about planning for this life. When you're thinking only about, you know, my finances and my houses and my, my possessions and, and, and these things, when we, we put too much emphasis on these things and our goal is not just I want to be financially secure and I want to have enough to support myself, to support my family and yes, for my future, but when my goal becomes more is I want to be luxury. I want to have luxury and I, 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 I become obsessed with this idea of luxury and neglect everything else, neglect other things that are more important, such as my spiritual life, in order to attain it, then, then maybe we become like this man whom the Lord was speaking about in this parable, who was thinking about building his barns and all this to expand himself, and yet his life was going to end prematurely, and he didn't even know. <coughs> and Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. As has been the theme of these people from the beginning, is they don't heed easily the, the wisdom that is said to them. 
Why? Because in their own minds and in their own experience, they have different thoughts. They have different plans. They have different ideas. They are resistant to the word of God because when the word of God comes to them, it doesn't immediately make sense to them. They think to themselves, well, what's wrong with saving more? You know, thinking with my own mind, what's wrong with saving more? What's wrong with, 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 with gathering more than what I need so that the next day I will have extra, you know? And part of this was a lack of faith because the idea that, so th think about it like this. You are in the desert and the only source of food is this magical bread that would fall from heaven, okay? And so in your mind, you have no control of this bread. You have no control of where, where it's coming from, how much is going to come. Is it going to come today? Is it not going to come today? All of this is completely based on faith that God will do what he said he was going to do, which is that he's going to send it every day, okay? So in the mind of the people, and this is why God said he was going to test them, all right? In the mind of the people, if I don't believe, if I don't have a strong faith, then I want to hoard it. I want to gather more than I need because what if, what if tomorrow doesn't come? What if, what if there's a day where God forgets, you know, to give? Y you have to have it, right? You have to, you have to have it to eat, to survive. And if God doesn't provide it, then I will die and I will not survive. So the people, again, as a reflection of their lack of faith, instead of trusting that God truly is going to send this day by day by day, they are, um, they are trying to keep parts of it. And God, to show them the, f the, the, the fallacy of the way that they were thinking, he allowed it to, to rot, you know, he allowed it to rot so so that whatever it is that they tried to keep it rotted so they would understand that what they were doing was wrong and that they were not living by faith. Again, back to us ourselves. We are to believe that God is providing us what we need day by day. Right. Day by day. We shouldn't be worried. Like even the Christ, he gave the example of birds. Right. He said, look how God provides the food for all of the birds. The birds don't have storage spaces. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have any way to store anything. All they do is fly around. And if they happen to see food, they eat the food and they fly off again. And God provides for those birds because wherever it is that they go, he, he, he allows them to find food to eat. Right. This is the example that the Lord gave when he was speaking about how we shouldn't worry about ourselves. Right. We shouldn't worry about our life. We shouldn't worry about our possessions. We shouldn't worry about the way that God takes care of us, because if God cares about the birds to provide for them, how much more valuable are we than birds to him? So the same kind of principle is here. He wants these people who are about to wander in the desert for 40 years. He wants them to trust him because there is no other way that they are going to survive in the coming ordeal that they are about to experience unless they trusted in God. If they didn't believe that God would provide food and water and, 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 and to keep their clothing from, from, um, from ripping and from wearing out, if they didn't believe in this, then they have no hope of survival. God is the only way for them to survive. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. And we mentioned about this uh, last time. Again, God is sending a clear message. He's saying, for the sake of, 
of not being distracted for the sake of consecrating a day of worship to the Lord, then God will bless us so that we can afford to take one day out of our week and consecrate it to God and focus only on God on it. All of the other days when they attempted to do the same thing, it would go bad. Every other day when they tried to store up for the next day, it would go bad. But this day, what is the motivation of storing it up? It's not because I want to hoard. It's not because of lack of faith. It's not because I feel like God is not going to provide. It's because God does not want us to be distracted on that day and to be 100% focused only on him. This is why we have a day of the week, which is the day of the Lord, that we come to church and we focus completely on God. And this is, the in this is what God wants. This is how God wants it to be. I know a lot of people, um, for maybe reasons outside of their control, they have to work on Sunday. And um, I understand that sometimes there is little that we can do to uh, get around this. Okay, But I would say that we should ask ourselves, okay, why is this the case? Why is it the case that we have to work on Sunday, that many people have to work on Sunday? It is a distraction of the devil. It is a distraction. He wants us to be so consumed with our bodies, with our possessions, with our money, with our jobs, with our career, with our future, that, that we feel that we have to do this, right? There are those who refuse. There are those who, you know, if they apply for a job and the job says you have to work on Sunday, they simply won't accept the job, right? What, what I'm trying to say is that God intends for us to work, but then he also intends that there is a time where we stop working. This is a balanced life, right? There is a time for everything. There is a time for work. There's a time for prayer. There's a time for coming to church there's a time for reading there's a time for spending time with family there's a time for exercise there's a time for everything and if we find in our days in our life that we are so consumed with one thing then that thing becomes an idol even if that thing in and of itself is bad like let's say one person it gets consumed and obsessed with exercise or one person gets consumed and, and obsessed with the idea of spending time with a family at the detriment of everything else you know, at the detriment of everything else. That thing consumes my life so that nothing else, there's no space or time for anything else. It doesn't have to be only for work. It could be anything. And, or, 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 or entertainment, travel. You know, some people, like, I, I have the time, I have the money, I'm going to travel, I'm going to travel nonstop. Every week I'm traveling. Well, if you're doing this constantly all the time, where is the, the stability that you need in order to pray? Where is the stability that you need in order to come to church? Maybe, maybe I don't have that stability, right? So everything is compromises. Everything has balance. What is it that I will choose? It's not really anything imposed on me as much as it's a decision that I make for myself. I choose what I spend my life doing, right? And there are many opportunities in the world for me to choose unwisely. There are many opportunities that are attractive. There are many opportunities that are enticing, that seem right, that seem good, that seem even a blessing from God. You know, oftentimes people will come and say, oh, you know, I have this job offer. This job offer requires me to work 60, 70 hours a week and that I work on Sundays as well. But the salary is great. Thank God. Well, let's, let's just take a step back, okay? Is this from God or not? Is it because the salary is great that it's from God? He told here the people to not even work on Sunday at all. Is the same God who told these people not to work at all on Sunday 
and not to gather anything on Sunday, or sorry, on the Sabbath day, it was Saturday at the time. Is he the same God who is now saying, you know what, I'm going to send you a job, and this job is going to totally consume you so that you don't even have a chance to go to church? We should think about that, right? Just because something has a lot of positive aspects to it doesn't mean that the negative aspects are not there. doesn't mean that the negative aspects are not actually like worse, you know, and it's not worth to go after it because sometimes when we go after things like that, it's hard to stop. You know, we start out one way and, you know, maybe at the beginning of our career and we feel like we have the time and we have the energy and we invest our whole life into work and then maybe we never know how to stop again. Once we get used to that level of income, you know, how am I going to drop down again? People will say, um, I'm just going to do it for now, okay? But, but it never ends. People keep going, keep going, keep going. So it's, it's again, I'm, I'm not trying, I know some people have situations where they are required to, to work on Sunday, and, and I'm not trying to point out anyone and saying, you're, you're wrong, this is a sin. What I'm trying to do is think of, what is our, what is our, how should our thought process be? It shouldn't be something easy for me to do. It shouldn't be something like, okay, you know what, um, working on Sunday is no big deal. No, I should think about it. Here God makes it clear that the day of the Lord matters. Also, the day of the Lord has a special blessing, right? You know, we, we can obviously, we can attend a liturgy any day of the week, okay? Whenever the liturgy is offered, we can, we can attend a liturgy. But the day of the Lord is more than just, I'm going to attend a two-hour liturgy. The day of the Lord is a day, a whole day that is consecrated to the Lord, it's not just two hours consecrated to the Lord, right? It's not just, a, 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 you know. Of course, attending liturgies all throughout the week is great, but I have to ask myself, is this a substitute for what God is sp speaking about here? Is it a substitute for this? A whole day of no work um, in order for us to be focused on him and him only? Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord, Today you will not find it in the field. Like saying, so on the Sabbath day you will not find any manna in the field to gather. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Right? This is the God's intention. Is there will be none. Right? There will be none. Because that is not a day of focusing on those things. The Sabbath day is not a day of focusing on the world. It is not a day to be focused on, on this life. It's, it's to be focused only on the heavenly life to remember the heavenly life. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather. Again, people are hard-headed. Just because somebody says so, just because somebody says this is what we should do, no, I think I know better, right? I think I understand better. I think I have, have insight, maybe that Moses doesn't have, maybe insight that God doesn't have, right? I will choose for myself how I want to live which is God of, indeed, he grants us freedom. He grants us every freedom in order to choose to live how we want to live. But that doesn't mean that we don't run up against consequences when we try to do so. So even after the people see, imagine like you, you're, there is bread that's raining from the sky and that is not a sufficient sign to tell you that God is, the, God is doing it. Like whatever God is doing, um, we should just follow him. We he, he's giving us bread. He hasn't neglected us. He hasn't forgotten about us. There is, no, there is no physical way that this could be happening other than it is a miracle that is coming from God. And yet even after seeing these things, I am not accepting 
to submit. And this kind of brings up an important point as well. Orthodoxy is a life of submission. Submission to the truth. Not just knowledge of the truth. There is a difference between I know the truth and I live the truth. There's a difference between I know information about the church, about God, versus I'm submitting myself to God. If you ask these, pe these people who are disobeying here and they're going out on the seventh day, you ask them, did God tell you not to go out on the seventh day? They say, yeah, God said though, not to go out on the seventh day. What is it that God said? God said, gather it on the sixth day, and then on the seventh day, um, you know, we, we don't need to do it. They knew, right? But that doesn't mean that they submitted to that. It, it, it didn't become a part of their life. You know, you ask people, is, is the, the bread and wine on the altar, is that truly the body and blood of Christ? Yes, it's the body and blood of Christ. Is coming to partake of communion important? Yes. Okay, but do you do it? Just because I acknowledge it, just because I, I understand it, just because I proclaim it, doesn't mean that I live it. Doesn't mean that it actually is a part of my life. Because for it to be a part of my life, it means that I have to sacrifice something. Right, And the sacrifice part is what's hard. It's easy to know something. It's easy to, to acknowledge the existence of information and facts that we truly believe. But to sacrifice something in my life, to live that life, is a different type of knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's, a, it's an experience that I have. It is, it is a submission to the truth, not just a knowledge of the truth. And so these people, even though they knew, and yet they found themselves not submitting. They were still thinking in the worldly way. And this always comes up to us like a problem because in the church, the church is a heavenly organization, if you want to call it an organization. It is heavenly. It operates by the, the laws of heaven. It doesn't operate by the laws of earth. And each of us, when we're speaking about our, our, our connection to God, our, our, our eternity, Right? We are speaking about something that's heavenly. We're speaking about something that operates according to the, the, the precepts, the commandments of God, not the commandments of man. But we still live in the world. And we still have laws of the world. And we still have ways of the world that we are, by necessity, having to follow and having to live by and having to do. We still have to have jobs. We still have to study certain things in the world. Things that, from an eternal perspective, are not important. But from a physical perspective are very important to us, right? So we find ourselves in these two worlds, right? In these two worlds that we have to navigate, right? And oftentimes these worlds collide together. And I have to make a decision, right? When the apostles were saying we, we will obey God rather than man. There are worldly authorities and there are heavenly authorities, right? And when those two conflict together, I have to choose the godly authority. When my mind and my logic is telling me that it's better to store up for myself so that in case I need more in the future, I have it ready to go as backup, that is a worldly way of thinking, right? That is a logical and normal, and all of us would think that that is, makes sense to do. It makes sense to do, and, you know, why not? It's good to have a backup. It's good to have a nest egg. It's good to have extra, right? But the heavenly way of thinking, which is the way that God was telling him to do, is don't think according to your mind. You know, here we have a conflict. We have a collision of these two worlds, the heavenly world and the earthly world. And God is saying, the forget the earthly in this case. Don't live by the earthly. Don't live by the logic of your mind. Live by faith. 
This is why the Lord always made the emphasis on the idea of faith. God is not wanting to come and explain to us every detail about everything. Because if he were to explain every detail about everything, then are we obeying him because we believe in him, because we trust in him? Or are we obeying simply because it, it makes logical sense? So there is some benefit actually for things not to make logical sense. As, as strange as that might sound to us. Not everything has to make logical sense. And actually, the times where we see the greatest works of God, the times where we experience God the most, is when things don't make logical sense. It didn't make logical sense for God to part the Red Sea. He could have been so, he could save the people through whatever means. Just have them go out, you know, and that was it. The, the illogic of, of the way that God saves. You know, I always use the example of um, the city of Jericho and how God told them to go around the city for seven days. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. There was no connection to the action that the people did with the result. There was no connection between them walking around the city to the result of the walls of the city falling down. There is no connection. God did not even attempt to make a connection. There was, there was no explanation as to how this in any way is going to result in anything. And we don't even know how it happened. We don't know what that did. But we know that the walls fell because the people submitted. They chose to do what it was illogical, right? And because they chose to do it out of faith, God um, carried out and was faithful to them and did what he promised, which is that they would be able to conquer the city. So it's important for us, even as we live in a very logical world, in a very educated world, in a world that um, looks down on Christianity because they say about us that we are delusional, that we are mindless, that we are doing things um, as like uneducated people. But actually, the, no, we are educated. We, we are logical. But there are times when you have to turn it off, right? There are times when you cannot use that as the means of understanding the truth and understanding reality. The problem with the world is they see that science is the only means of discovering truth. It's a very good means of discovering a lot of truth, but that doesn't mean that it's the universal means of discovering all truth, right? Because God does not operate that way. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Like God here is pleading with them. You know, it's saying, why are you not listening to what I'm saying? Haven't you yourself observed that I gave you double the amount the previous day and I told you that there wouldn't be any today? It's not that I'm neglecting you. I actually am planning ahead for you so that you have enough to eat all along. Right? Every day you have enough to eat. Why? You know, don't you see for yourselves that the Lord has given you the Sabbath? That the Lord has given you bread for two days as before? So even appealing to their logic and understanding, it's like everything that I told you to happen, happen. Right? So why are you persisting to resist? So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, 
when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. This pot of manna, where, what, what ended up happening to it? Where was it stored? The Ark of the Covenant, right? It was one of the things in the Ark of the Covenant. Why is God asking them to keep it? And again, this manna is not going to go bad, right? And this manna is going to stay there for generations, not just for two days, right? He wanted them, what? To be kept for your generations in the future so that the people will remember the faithfulness of God. So they will remember these days when they were wandering, when they were um, in need in the desert and how God provided for them and God um, protected them, right? Um, And so, and also this manna actually, or in this uh, pot, we said that the Lord said about himself that he is the bread of life and he compared himself to the manna that came down from heaven. So what is this pot representing in that analogy? Well, we said the manna is Christ. The pot is the world, the church, St. Mary, right? The, 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 the pot of manna represents St. Mary, just like the censer also represents St. Mary. The, the coal in the censer represents the Lord Christ, Okay, and so the censer represents Saint Mary because the coal is in like the, the the bosom, the womb of the of the censer. So here also the manna represents Christ, and so the pot of manna, the pot represents Saint Mary who ha- held um, the Lord in her womb. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Okay? So that was the manna and the rules of the Sabbath. So then goes on. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the book of Numbers has like a parallel account about a lot of the events that are happening here. There are some events that are recorded in the book of Numbers that are not recorded in Exodus, and there are some details that is mentioned in Numbers that are like uh, skipped over um, in the book of Exodus. So just to give you an example, okay, here in the book of Exodus... It's saying they set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin and they camped in Rephidim. Okay, so it makes it sound like they went from here to here. Okay, what does the book of Numbers say? This is in Numbers chapter 33. It says they journeyed from the wilderness of sin and camped at Dovka. They departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. So you see, it's the same story, but it's mentioning these intermediate locations um, that was not mentioned here um, in the book of Exodus. Okay, um, Origen, who is uh, a scholar of the church, um, he writes very allegorically. So he, he takes all the things happening um, in the Old Testament, 
and he uh, sees in it um, like deep spiritual meditation. And one of the things that he did is he considered that all of these waypoints, <coughs> all these locations that the Israelites stopped in, all throughout the 40 years of them wandering in the wilderness, had like some spiritual meaning that was a parallel to our spiritual life, right? Like as though in our spiritual life, we have like these stations and different stages that we pass through, just as here the Israelites pass through these stages. So remember, the major ones that we spoke about already was how um, in Egypt they were slaves of sin to Pharaoh who represents Satan and how they were baptized in the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea, right? And how ultimately they're going to the promised land, right? So just as in a believer's life, we are slaves to sin, we are baptized and transformed, and we are on this journey to the promised land, okay? Um, so according to Origen, when you look at the names of these places that um, the the Israelites have are stopping in. So it said what the first place they went to was the place called Dofka, okay? So according to Origen, this means good health, okay? As though that the soul is ex like that's experiencing God um, is going to be blessed with good health and becomes purified from sin. Like they are leaving this wilderness called the wilderness of sin and they're going to this place called Dofka, which is like a place where the soul is experiencing wisdom and discernment, um, having left sin behind and crossing over to this place where they are experiencing good health. Okay, The next location that they went to, according to the verse in the book of Numbers, is Alush. Okay? And this um, origin is saying that after we experience good health, um, the soul enjoys this as a gift from God. It would then be able to do good works. Right? So it's like... <coughs> We go from, like, we are baptized and renewed. We experience, like, a spiritual health, like spiritual good health, which then would allow us to do good works. Like in Psalm 128, verse 2, it says, When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Okay? And then after that, you go to Rephidim, which is the place that's mentioned here in this verse in Exodus, which according to him, it means like sound discernment. It's like the, the, the work of the Spirit is in us now that is allowing us to discern right from wrong, good and evil, that is allowing us to judge. Um, just as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So it's kind of like a process of spiritual growth that is symbolized here by these locations <coughs> that, uh, that are mentioned. So they're here now camping at this place called Rephidim. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So I want to ask a question. If you were in their position, and you were in a place where you had no water, okay, the first question is, is it wrong to ask for water? No. So so what's wrong here? Why is, why, what, is the, the, what is it that they're doing? They gave up hope, yeah? Blaming God. 
why is it that God didn't give them water at the beginning? I mean, he did it earlier on. But, but he sees here, like, his people are thirsty. Why didn't he just give them water? Why is he allowing them to thirst? Sorry? So they could turn to him, right? You know, when, when everything is just given to us, we don't pay attention to the fact that this is a blessing coming from God. Like, when everything just comes in our way, comes and is given to us without us even having to do anything for it, we just kind of, it's there, and we have it, and we're happy for it, but we don't really necessarily think about it as a blessing. We maybe even think about it as a right or that we're entitled to it. But when we go through some kind of need, that need should then prompt us to take some kind of action. And the action that God wants his people to take is that they see him as a provider for them. They see him as someone who wants to do good for them. But instead of asking him out of their need and, and asking in faith and asking with respect and asking with an expectation that God is good and understanding that God is good, these people are always quick to blame God and not only to blame God, but to like curse their lives because of what they are experiencing. Like our lives are so miserable because of what we're experiencing. It is better for me to just die. It's better for me to die than to experience this because of their hopelessness that there is any salvation for them. And you see, this is a pattern for them. When they were on the shore of the Red Sea and they saw Pharaoh coming, against they cursed themselves. It was better for us to have died in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die? And when they were hungry, it's better for us to have just died in Egypt where we had pots of meat. Everything was a cursing of their situation as though it is so bad that they would rather be dead rather than to be where they are now, which is a constant blasphemy against God. Because God is the one who allowed them to be here. You know, when, when we curse our condition like this, what we are saying is that God is foolish. God is ignorant. God, like, doesn't know what's best for us to allow us to be in the situation that we're in. And so we are, we are better than him. You know, we are, we, are, we are better than Why would you even allow such a condition to be? Right? Is what we are saying or what these people are saying here to God. So there is a difference between someone who asks in faith because they truly have need versus someone who com complains and blames and curses, okay? which is what the, the people are doing here. So whenever we feel like we are in, in need, we should um, try to keep ourselves from being like this. Keep ourselves like maybe we are in a state of desperation. But that state of desperation is not because God is ignorant of our status. It's not because he doesn't realize what's happening to us or he didn't realize what would happen to us or, or he's neglecting us. That's not, that's not the condition. God wants us at times to be in these places. He allows us to be in these places of need so that we call out and we see that the resolution of our problem is completely from his hand. It is not from the world. It's not from ourselves it is completely from his hand. And when things are the most troubling and the most dire is when we can attribute the solution can only be from God because no other person and no other circumstance and nothing we can do could even begin to solve such a problem. You know? 
um, it's uh, it, it, it reminds me of the story of the moving of the mountain of the Mokattam mountain in Egypt, um, where where the Coptic people in Egypt were put in such a, 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 a situation that there was no human means by which they could be freed from um, what was going to happen to them. They were they were called by the rulers of the, the ruler of Egypt to move a mountain, literally. So so how how could you even begin to find a solution to that problem, right? The only person they could even begin, like you couldn't, you couldn't go to an engineering company and be like, hey, can you help me move this mountain? Like, like there was no human you could go to to e get any kind of relief or hope to solve this problem, right? It was completely only within the supernatural. It was only within the realm of God, and the people cried out to God. But the Egyptians, the Coptic people at the time, they did not call out to God to curse him. They didn't call out to God and say, how could you allow us to be in such a situation? But they called out to God in, in faith and asking for his mercy, and, and God responded. So it's important for us when we are in these situations like this to see our life in a sober, objective way. You know, Sometimes we are consumed with the emotions of the difficulties that we are experiencing, but turn that into some faithful supplication and prayer to God, not as a complaint against him, but as a, um, as a realization, understanding that God is the only one who can solve um, our problem. And the Lord says in this famous verse in Isaiah chapter 65, it says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And if truly we lived our life like this, knowing that God is um, giving to us everything that we need, even before we ask of him. God knows our situation. God knows um, our plight. Also, a verse that I like to quote a lot is Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Right? Oftentimes in those situations, my desire is that, that whatever problem that I have is solved immediately. Because in my mind, the immediate resolution is the only right answer. It's the only good thing that can happen is that God fixes my problem immediately and that and that the fact that it hasn't already been fixed is like an oversight by him. Like he, he just he's not paying attention. But that's not my my that's not the goal of my of my prayer. My goal of my prayer is to acknowledge that the situation that I'm in while I don't enjoy it, I don't like it and I I'm asking God to change it, but at the same time that there is wisdom in it. There that God has God has some wisdom for the present moment, and we're asking God to um, overcome the situation and to teach us what we need to learn out of the situation so that we can come out of it, right? And to wait patiently. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And that idea of waiting, which is something that we don't like to do, Waiting doesn't mean do nothing. Like Waiting doesn't mean just stay idle. Waiting in faith means to continue to seek God, to continue to remind ourselves of the mercies of God, to continue to trust that God sees our plight and how we are suffering and that God will answer in his due time, while at the same time believing that God hasn't yet answered, not because of his negligence, but because there is a reason, there is a good reason while he allows me to go through this trial that I'm experiencing. 
So if the people were to recognize that, yes, we are thirsty. Yes, if we don't have water, we're going to die, obviously. But they turned that into a faithful supplication to God. Then it wouldn't have been a complaint. They wouldn't have cursed their lives. But they would actually have been edified to see what God was going to do. Another interesting thing is that even though they did not do this, even though they were not faithful, even though they cursed their lives many times, even though they, they, they belittled God and they blasphemed against him because they, they, they saw that he was not really a good provider for them, God was still faithful and did to them what they asked. Okay? So it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the peop- that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Okay? So, so you see God is responding. Now, from a spiritual perspective, because again, everything that we're seeing here has like a deeper spiritual um, meaning. This rock, St. Paul, when he's speaking actually about this rock, what does he say? This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. This is the, the pillar of cloud that was like leading them. All passed through the sea, the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses because Moses led them into the Red Sea. In the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, the manna. All drank the same spiritual drink, which is this water. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So St. Paul here says that this rock that Moses, okay, um, struck with his rod and water came out of it is a representation of Christ, is a symbol of Christ. So how is that the case? Okay. The first way that it's a symbol of Christ is that they had just been spiritually baptized in the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, as St. Paul said, okay? And the Lord said to the Samaritan woman when he was speaking with her that he is the fountain of living water. So he is like the the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment of the people, right? He is the the fountain of living water. And so just as... um, the a person who after they have been baptized in the church they're coming and partaking you know of of communion and they are partaking of christ okay so here these people are like partaking of christ in this in this water and the fountain of living waters um who who is christ also um christ when he was crucified on the cross and he was struck in his side what came out of his side Water and blood. Water and blood. Water and blood came out of his side. So here, just as Moses struck this rock with a rod, so also Christ, when he was crucified on wood, right, on the wood of the cross, and water and blood came out. See here, see here also the rod, which represents like the cross that is that is striking Christ, that is injuring Christ, and the water is coming out. Okay? Um, and this water is for the atonement and purification of, um, of those who are the believers, those who believe in him. Another nice meditation, actually, speaking about the, the water and the blood that comes out of the side of Christ. Um, some of the church fathers speak about how this water um, represents, this water and blood represents the church. Because just as Eve came from the side of Adam, 
Eve, who is the wife of Adam, so also Christ, who is the second Adam, and the bride of Christ, who is the church, who is coming from the side of Christ. So it's, it's kind of an, a nice meditation also. The blood and the water coming out of the side of Christ uh, represents the church. Also, a third point about here is it said here in verse... Um, here in verse 5, when it says, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. So some of the elders of Israel, they went with Moses um, in order to see him to strike this rock. Okay? Um, the Just as Moses took these elders, okay, um, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses and the prophets and the patriarchs and all those who had written in the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies, they all testify to the work of salvation, right? They are all testifying and writing about the coming of the Messiah. So it's just like these elders are watching this event take place, which represents like the crucifixion. So also like these elders represent those prophets and patriarchs who wrote in their prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, okay? One one side note is, you know, always in the icons and the pictures, they, they show like, you know, Moses hits the rock, and then this little trickle stream comes out, you know, it would have to be much more than that, right? So um, in order to have water enough to drink for like a million people, right? So so just keep that, just keep that in mind. Um, question. Yeah. Uh, back in verse 5, the, the rock you were used to strike the river, is that referring to the first plague? Yeah, yeah, the first plague. The same rod that God had given him, uh, uh, well, Moses already had it. The same rod that yeah, he used all throughout the plagues. Yeah, and the same rod that he passed through the Red Sea when he lifted it up and all that. So we call the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Massa and Meribah is translated testing and contention, Right? The people are the ones that are testing and contending with God. The people are arguing against God, and so he called that place again by that name. Again, th the idea here is to remember. When, when, when later on they say, oh, this name of this place is Massa and Meribah, testing and contention. Why is it called that? Because such and such and such happened, right? In order for the people to remember their history. And this is a very important thing when it comes to really society as a whole, but specifically in the church. Knowing where we came from, knowing what transpired before us, knowing how we came to be where we are, knowing the mistakes that have happened in the past in order to prevent us from falling into them again is very important. And this is something that has been completely like erased from the mind of people. You know, This is why even when we are speaking about orthodoxy to someone who is you know, maybe uh, in another Christian tradition or not Christian at all, one of the big ways for us to show the authenticity of our faith is through history, right? Do you want to know where our church came from? This is the history of our church. Our, our church was not founded 50 years ago or 10 years ago or even 1,000 years ago. It was founded at the time of Christ, right? So you want to establish authenticity. You want to establish that, that this church is the same faith as the, the first church, right? So, But we have to know where we came from. Sadly, um, you know, people adopt the attitude of I'm going to go somewhere and if I like what I see and if I like the people there, then that's sufficient for me. Of course, that's an important aspect of the church, but that's not the only thing. And I would argue that's not the most important thing, 
right? The most important thing is what do we believe and why do we believe it? And in, in our society as a whole, we find ourselves um, making mistakes and doing things that could have been avoided if we understood our past and we understood what came before. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So Amalek is, this is a, the Amalekites, okay? So this is a, 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 a pagan nation, okay? This is the first battle, this is the first war that now the Israelites are about to partake in. So it says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Okay, so several important points here. The first one is, from the very beginning, um, Moses recognized the importance of prayer for success. Right? They, you know, he stayed back, and his role was to pray for the success of the people. That's all he did. Didn't fight, right? He prayed for the success of the people. And it was clear that when he stopped praying, you know, when he grew tired, then the people started to be defeated. But when he lifted up his hands again in prayer, then they had success. This is an example that shows us um, the 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 relationship in our spiritual life between striving and grace, right? Joshua represents the fighter, the struggle, the work. You know, when we're talking about overcoming sin, when we're talking about, like, the spiritual struggle, this is represented and personified in Joshua. He is the one going into the battle. He is the one thinking about the details. He is the one who is organizing the army. He is the one who is fighting and working and toiling, okay? The Moses represents the work of God in our battle, right? The, 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 the power of God in the battle, without which there can be no success. So if Joshua went and he did all of the work and all the planning and all the details and all that stuff, but there wasn't the grace of God in it, then it would fail. On the flip side, if all the people, all they did was they stood up to pray, but nobody went to battle, no one tried to fight, all they did was pray alone, then also they would not have they would not have succeeded, right? Because they were relying, they would be relying on God to do what they themselves could do. So this model of we are fighting, we are doing our role, we are we are we are planning, we are thinking, we are we are taking action to the best and to the most that we can, but in the end, we are relying on God to bless all of those actions. We're relying on God to give us success in those things. Yeah. Would praying alone be counted as like tempting the Lord? So if if we pray alone without doing anything, then we are expecting God to do maybe the things that we prefer not to do. Like like an example, like um, someone is asking God to give him work, to give him a job, and he wants a job, and so he's praying night and day, 
And he's give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. But he's not wanting to look for a job. He's not wanting to get his resume ready. He's not wanting to submit a job. He's not wanting to do any of that, right? Then that's like saying, yes, it's, it's like you could call it like a temptation. Like you could say, we are, at, we are telling God to do something. Like, you know what, God? I'm not going to look both ways before I cross the street. I'm just going to cross the street. And by the grace of God, I will be saved. You know, there are some Christians that they, they, they handle snakes. You heard of, you've seen these, right? It's the same idea. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take these snakes. Why? Because St. Paul, um, St. Paul, when he was bitten by a snake, right? He, he just brushed it off and he was fine, right? Well, what's the difference? St. Paul was not seeking to be bitten by a snake. St. Paul was bit by a snake as an accident and God protected him, right? As a part of his service. But to those people who, 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 who kind of test the Lord and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put myself in danger and I trust that God is going to protect me. Well, why do you think that? You know, well, like there are plenty of, and these people, sadly, these people who, who, who play with snakes and do this, like some of them get bitten and they die, right? So, so that it's, 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 yes, so, so we do our part. And this is when we were speaking about in the harvest meeting uh, like a long time ago about the relationship between this striving and grace. Um, a lot of uh, other Christian churches, they believe in something called monergism. Monergism means one work, meaning only God works. These people believe that God is the only one that matters when it comes to salvation. God forgives us our sins. God grants us grace, and we have nothing to do but to receive the grace of God to the extent that some believe in something called irresistible grace, which means that if a person actively rejects God, God forces him to receive the grace of God even when he doesn't want it. Like you are saved against your will, right? Saying that it is the only the work of God that matters. It is only the work of God that makes any difference, and the work of human beings is irrelevant and doesn't matter at all. That's totally not as orthodox what we believe. At the same time, we don't believe that it is only the work of man. The work of man cannot bring salvation. No good works that we do could ever make us to be saved. So it is a synergy. It is a combination of work. It is a union of work between us and God. And this is the same thing here. It is the work of the fighters and it's the work of the prayers. It's the work of both. It's the grace of God working in the efforts of men, which then they 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 were able to succeed. Um, also, some of the church fathers, they speak about how Moses, when he lifted up his hands, it was a representation of the cross. Tertullian, he says, Why, I wonder, did he merely at the time when Joshua was battling against Amalek, pray, sitting with hands expanded, when in circumstances so critical, he ought rather surely to have commended his prayer by knees bent, and hands beating his breast, and a face prostrate on the ground. The figure of the cross was also necessary, that figure through which Jesus was to win the victory. So here he's saying this sign of him lifting up his hands in this way was a symbol of the cross and how we have victory over death um, only through the cross. Also the fact that Moses was up on a hill symbolizing that Christ was crucified also on a hill on, on Mount Calvary. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out uh, the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So he made this altar again as a reminder. Um, the Lord is my banner. is like the, the banner of victory. Like the Lord is the one who granted us victory in this battle. To remember always this battle and how God worked in them in order to win. The Lord is my banner. He commemorated this by building um, an altar. I think this is a good stopping point. Any comments or questions before we conclude? One comment on the like uh, uh, those who like would play with the snakes. Yeah. If based it on the verse uh, by Saint Paul. And well, there's also like a verse from Sirach, like who pity, who will take pity on uh, on a chanter struck by a serpent. Uh yeah. So there you go. That's an, that's the opposite example. Because it has a canonical. Yeah. And they and they also use the verse about how you know um, we will trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. They take that in a literal way, like um, you know, literally snakes will not harm us. Yeah. You want a documentary about the people that do that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray.